We're going to be in John chapter 15 today. Um, but before we get started, let's spend some time praying for the, uh, our brothers and sisters around the globe who are persecuted for their faith and don't um, have the freedoms that we do, as we saw in that video. So join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we lift up our brothers and sisters. We lift up those believers in countries such as North Korea and so many others around this globe that don't, do not have the freedoms we have to assemble. Or if they do, they're constantly afraid of what the government might, might do or what their neighbors might do. So we lift them up to you, Lord. We pray for them that they can be encouraged that they can be steadfast in their devotion, that they can be kept safe, but that they keep their eyes and their hope firmly attached to you, Lord. That they know that no matter what happens in this life, that they're following you and that their end is assured and that peace and comfort that only you can give can guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So Lord, this morning as we dive into a text that gives us a pretty dire promise if we follow Christ, we're reminded of our brothers and sisters who cling to you with devotion that kind of boggles the mind sometimes. But we lift them up to you this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a thought that kind of rules our world, and it's a variation that you might have heard of uh, might makes right. You've heard that thought before. It's the thought of the bully on the playground that he says he, his way is right and he gets his way, and if you oppose it, he's going to let you know, maybe not in the most kind way, that might makes right. But there's another thought related to that that I think we fall into so easily, and that is success makes right. That if something works, it's right. If stuff goes well for you, you must be on the right path. And that kind of makes sense in a way because we want to be successful. We want what, is, what we do to work out well. And so obviously th that makes sense. But the problem comes is when we take that idea and apply it to our faith and start to think that God's blessing is always kind of shown as the world would define success. That if things are going well for my life, that must mean God is blessing me. Or if things are on easy street, that must mean that God is looking after me. And we start worshiping not so much God who might lead us in ways that are hard, but we start worshiping success and what works in our life. We start focusing on that. But when we come to the Bible and we see the truth spelled out for us, we realize that it can't be that way. For even just looking at our Lord and Savior, no one could look at him and say, that was a success. That was something that showed it worked out. Bonhoeffer, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian during the uh, Second World War, says this in light of this idea that people worship success. He says, In a world where success is a measure and justification of all things, the figure of him who was sentenced and crucified 
remains a stranger and is best the object of pity. The world will allow itself to be subdued only by success. The figure of the crucified invalidates all thought which takes success as its standard. The fact that we worship a crucified Lord boggles the mind of people who do not know him. For they say you're worshiping a failure, someone who did not succeed and do what he was supposed to. But as we read in John 15, Jesus gives us a promise. And that promise is that if we follow him, we can expect the same things he received. And so if you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn to John chapter 15. If you do not, do not worry. It's going to be on the screen. But we're going to start in verse 18, and it says this. John speaking again to his disciples during this last kind of moment in the upper room before he heads to the garden. And he says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If you kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things, uh, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. John, uh, John, the Gospel of John, with the words of Jesus, reminding us that if we follow Christ, we can expect the same things that Christ received. And so when we hear stories like the video we just watched of North Korea and their, their reactions to Christians, we should not be shocked because it's actually a promise we have from Scripture. And it's a reality that the world persecutes Christians. It's a reality. Now, we're kind of shielded from that reality because we live in America and we praise God for the freedoms and the rights we have here. And so when people hear us talk about this, sometimes they think Christians have a moderate complex. They might look at Christians and say, oh, you just are looking for persecution anywhere and everywhere. And that's not true. Hopefully that's not true. But the reality is, even those people who look at American Christians or the Christians in the West and might make those claims, they cannot help but look at other places in the world and say, oh yeah, you're right. The world at large seems to be working against Christianity. And we can look at numbers. Different organizations track these numbers. Where some people put 4,305 Christians killed just this year for their faith. Others say it's as high as 8,000 Christians who have died because they believe. 
There's 111 countries who have policies that resist or outright um, ban Christianity from being in their countries. That some people say there's 100 million Christians who are suffering or undergoing persecution around the globe right now. That 1,800 about Christian buildings have been attacked or, or destroyed this year alone. That around 3,000 Christians have been detained for their faith in, the, in different countries. In North Korea, as we saw, is actually a really big one where there might be around 50,000 Christians right now in detention camps for the sole reason that they believe in Jesus Christ. India is cracking down on Christianity so much so that when we were there in 2016, that they were kicked out Compassion International. And if you know what Compassion International is, it's a Christian organization that takes care of kids, provides education and food for them, but because they're Christian and they're bold about their faith, they said, you're no longer welcome. And one of the churches we were uh, um, there visiting was trying to now figure out how they can take care of these 300 kids just in their context who were provided food, education, but now no longer could do so because the Compassion International was kicked out because they're Christian. We traveled to India, as I said, and uh, I'm a pastor. You might know that. And so on my visa that you have to get approved for to go to India, it says this, not valid for church or ministry activities. Now, when you're in a country that's hostile to the Christian faith and you're walking around with that in your pocket and you're at Christian activities and missionary activities, it made me a little nervous. And I always thought that that was bigger than it is on that visa because in my mind it was like big red letters. But that's just a sample, a small sample of what Christians around the globe go through. For there's countries where when you get your national ID card, you put your faith on it that you actually have to declare you're Christian. And so now everyone who sees that ID knows who you are and what you believe. So there's no doubt that Christians around the globe are persecuted for their faith. That the reality of this passage in John 15 is true. And so when we see this truth, we see it saying this, that if we are of Jesus, we'll be hated like Jesus. That's the truth that we'll, we should expect the same treatment. We should expect people to look at us through the same lens, that we should expect that people view us in the same way, that if we are of Jesus, we will be hated like Jesus. And we don't see that that often here in our country. And so we can sometimes doubt that. Because we have amazing freedoms and the persecution we feel are usually people might be looking at us funny, maybe talking about us behind our backs. But even in our country with amazing freedoms, there are Christian organizations that are now being banned from some of the activities they've normally done on college campuses and in other organizations. I just heard a news story about the ministry Young Life. It's a Christian organization that we here at this church support in Fort Smith, but Duke University just came down and said it cannot be a student organization on their campus. Why? Because they hold to some basic tenets of Christianity that are in counter to the culture. And so this stuff is reality. This happens even in our country. If we are of Jesus, we will be hated 
like Jesus. And this is a heavy message that you cannot get around. For when you read this passage, we see this reality of persecution is coming, and Jesus loves his disciples, so he wants to prepare them for that. He wants to give them comfort in the midst of that. So we can start with asking the question, why does the world hate Christians? Why does the world hate Christ? When we ask that question, when we go to this text, we see this, Jesus saying that point blank, that if the world hates you, do not be surprised, because it hated me first. And so when we, we say the world hates Christians, we first have to ask the question, what do we mean by world? Because the world is actually a word that's used throughout the Bible in many different ways. This word, cosmos, can mean all of creation. It can mean this dirt ball in which we live. It can mean all of humanity or a subset of humanity. So when Jesus is using world, what does he mean that the world hates him? Well, it can't mean all humans because here he's talking with his 11 bros who obviously do not hate him. And it's being written by John to the church, which obviously does not hate him. And it's being read by us, the church, which obviously do not hate Jesus. And so it can't mean everyone everywhere, but it means that there are a subset of humanity, of people who do not like Jesus. That when we look at what world means, we really see that it is the, the um, created moral order that is in rebellion against God. That's people who do not know God, who do not want anything to do with God, that they actually have this system of thought, they live and operate in which they don't want anything to do with him, and so they oppose him every chance they get. That's what Jesus means by world, that there is a system, a belief, in which so many people live and operate that's opposed to God. And so we see in that first verse, verse 18, he says, Jesus says, if the world hates me. Don't be surprised, basically, because it hated me first. And this if statement's not one of uncertainty, but re- really more of a sense of if they hate you, and trust me, they will, it's because you're connected to me. It's because you follow me and you're of me. Which can make us ask the question well, did the world really hate Jesus? Because he seems to have a lot of followers. He still has a whole lot of followers. So how can we say the world hates Jesus? But when you put this statement in the context on which it comes, less than 24 hours before Jesus is going to be arrested, beaten, falsely tried, whipped, and then crucified for crimes he never committed, we can say, yes, the world hated Jesus. When people dressed him up as a mock king and hurled insults at him, we see a clear example that the world does not like him. When they hung him upon the cross to die and walked by and mocked him, and even when the criminals who's dying beside him does the same thing, we see, yes, people did not like him because he spoke the truth of who God was and he pointed to himself. And Jesus said, if you're of me, If you are associated with me, you can expect the same things. Why? Because he says, I've called you out 
of the world. You are not of the world, he says in verse 19. You are not of this world. You follow me. He's saying, you guys once were rebels. You guys once were sinners. You guys once were astray going your own way against God. But now I've called you out of that and I brought you into my family and I've changed you. And because I've changed you, you now stand opposed to that system of thought that's against me. And so because I've called you out, people were will oppose you. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if you, if you came to Christ later in life, most likely you have people in your life that look at you and they almost feel offended that you would follow Christ rather than the ways you used to walk. And they can use language like, oh man, you're just holier than now. You think you're really better than me, don't you? Because they're, they're offended. They're, they're, they're hostile to this fact that someone could actually have a life change that is so profound. I love how D.A. Carson says it when he's talking about the fact that the world might be hostile toward those who come to know Christ. He says, Former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. That us who have been won back to our king, there are other rebels around us, really are not going to respond happily to us. And that's a pressure we might all have experienced once in a while in our life because we are all want to just fit in, don't we? Ask any kid who goes to school, what does he want to do or she want to do? I just want to fit in and be accepted. Ask anyone that probably, uh, goes to a new job, what do they want? I just want to fit in. And the call of Jesus when he says, you're not of this world, I've called you out of this world, is in direct opposite of this desire we have just to fit in. Now, if Jesus just wanted us to live a life where we fit in, he didn't have to do anything. We were doing just fine by ourselves. But yet he calls us out not to fit in, but he calls us out what to serve him, to live a life as we saw last week where we bear fruit, where we actually are, are, are evidencing that we follow him, that our life is changed, that we love people as he loved, that we do all these things. And when we do that, we actually will stand out from the world. We'll be alien to the world. We'll be foreigners to the world. And that they don't really like because we're different, because we've been called to be different. He continues in verse 20 how if we serve him, because we serve him, we'll be hated because we serve the one the world hates. You can't follow a crucified Savior and not expect a cross. You can't follow someone that the world, even though they were without sin, the world hated, and we, when we come to that, would expect the same things. This is a pattern that we see starting even in the book of Acts that the world, the society, did not like Christians. We see this in uh, Acts uh, 5. When, if you look at Acts 5, beginning of the church, disciples got uh, into some trouble with the leaders of the Jewish um, synagogue, uh, synagogue, the temple and the, and the council, and they were called before them and saying, what are you doing? And they're saying, well, we're just preaching Christ, and they'll say, you can't do that. And so we uh, picking up in uh, verse 40 of Acts 5, it says, and, when they, call, and they, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them 
and and charged them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That these people were doing what is happening across the globe, counting it worthy to be beaten in the name of Jesus. Why? Because, it sh- because they identified with their Savior who they knew experienced the same way, same thing, and they expected it. And that's harsh for us to comprehend, and it's hard for us to comprehend. But it's the truth of the Scriptures, that if we follow Christ, if we're of Jesus, we'll be treated like Jesus. But sometimes we don't experience that. And the truth is, sometimes we don't experience that because you can't really tell that we're following Jesus. That we're just fitting in. That we're not bearing that fruit that we're called to. That we're not different from the world around us. (laughs) One commentator said this, if we wear the uniform with the word Christian written over our chest, but we go out on the court and help the other team, the other team isn't going to hate us. They'll only hate the one actually playing for Jesus. It's a sports metaphor, which I really don't do. But it made me think of the kid on my Titus, my son's soccer team, who doesn't want to be there, who was playing defense, and every time the ball came close to him, he kicked it towards his own goal. The other team had no problem with this kid. The other team actually probably liked this kid. The other king team was about was taking a vote and saying maybe he's going to be our MVP. The other team probably didn't like the kids that were going after it that they had to fight against. That's the same thought here is that when we as Christians shrink back, pull back from standing firm, when we do not lean into the truth of Scripture, even when it maybe defies expectations or the ways of culture, when we shrink back, no one's going to complain. No one's going to say, think any different than us. But it's when we stand firm, when we're standing firm on the truth of who Jesus is, that when we take the criticism, when we speak with love, we're not jerks about it, but when we speak with love the truth that the only way to God, the only way from saving from sin, the only way we can have peace and reconciliation with our maker, the only way we can have peace right now, the only way that we have hope in this world is through Jesus Christ. When we stand firm on that, and as a result of our faith, we live differently, and that we can no longer follow the ways of the world, we can no longer give in on these codes of ethics, we can no longer say that's just okay, you do you and I'll do me. No, we stand firm on the truth of who Jesus is. When we do that, that's when society might not like us. That is when we will face persecution. Whether, however slight it is now here in this country, or if we're in another country, maybe more severe, that is when we start to experience what Jesus experienced. That we, if we're of Jesus, we'll be hated like Jesus. And that Christianity, Christians, actually divide humanity into two camps. Christ does this, and how people treat us, it follows suit. That you're either following Christ or you're not. 
that you're either following Christ and though there you're honoring and respecting and loving the brotherhood of Christ, or you're not and you're working against it. That there's actually no there's an either or situation here as we see in this scripture. And they do this. Why? Because the world does not like Christ, and so it cannot like Christ followers. As we see in verse 22 through 25, that the world does not like Jesus. Why? First, because the world is estranged from Jesus. It can't like Jesus because it doesn't know who sent Jesus. That if the world does not know God, why would it like the person sent by God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, to speak the word of truth, to live a perfect sinless life, and to die for us? Why would the world understand that if it can't understand Jesus is from God? And so the world is estranged from God. It's the, the human humanity has its understanding darkened, and they cannot see who Jesus is. And then they really don't like Jesus because Jesus exposes the world's guilt. That's what Jesus says. When, he said, when he's talking in verses uh, 23 through 25 about how he came and people were, uh, were kind of did not know they were sinners until he came, he's really not saying they were without sin, but he's saying instead that when I come, I'm like a mirror and I reflect to them that they are not living the standard in which they're called to live, and so they hate me because I show that they have not lived up to who God is. That I am reflecting to them on who, on their guilt and their shame, and they don't like that. They respond negatively, negatively because of it. There's a there's a um, a story about missionaries in Africa about how a, a wife of an African chief came uh, to a mission statement uh, station, and the missionary had a small little mirror hanging out on on the tree uh, outside his home, and the woman happened to glance into it as she's walking by, and she. Uh, and she had came straight from her pagan environment and had never seen the, the, how she looked. And so she saw the paintings on her face and she saw these stern features and she actually was taken back and she didn't know who this was. And so she asked the missionary, who is that in the tree? And the missionary says, no one's in the tree. It's a mirror. It's a glass. Like, look at it. It's reflecting back on who it is. She could not believe it until she took the mirror off the tree and looked at it and was looking at her face and she, she asked the missionary, how much is this? I must have this. And the missionary really didn't want to give up his mirror, but she persisted so much so that he was like, oh, I just don't want to cause trouble. So he, they set a price. She agreed to it. She paid it. She took the glass and she threw it on the ground and broke it. Why? Because she says, I will never have it making faces at me again. This is how, why the world hates Christ. And in the small part like it, how the world hates Christians. Why? Because we reflect upon them where they are. That Jesus reflected upon them that they are standing opposed to God and outside of God, and it gets uncomfortable when they realize that, and so they feebly strike out against Him because of it. And when we seek to strive after God and point to the gospel and point to grace and point to our Savior, we're doing the same thing. They'll see that, and it can make them uncomfortable because it exposes them for who they are. and exposes where they are, and they might hate us because of that. So we see it's very clear from the Scripture, if we're of Jesus, the world will hate us like Jesus. So how do we respond? Well, 
Jesus never leaves us hanging. And he doesn't in this circumstance as well. He tells us how to respond. He starts and says, don't stop witnessing. Don't stop sharing the truth of who I am. Because that's the knee-jerk reaction that we all have, right? That we get pumped up, maybe at church, hopefully you get pumped up at church, and you're like, yes, I'm going to go and pick that person, and I'm going to share the gospel with them. And then we get into our work environment, or we get wherever they are, and we realize, oh, maybe they might think less of us, they might say something weird to us, I might not have the answers, and we shrink back because we are afraid of what might happen. And that's the truth of this. That's the truth of us. I, I've done it so many times. I'm like, I'm going to share the gospel, and then you start shrinking back because you start being afraid of what they might think or what they might say, and we pull back. That if we know that if we stand firm, we might undergo maybe some fire of persecution. We pull back from that because we don't want to get hurt. But Jesus says to us, "Keep going." Don't stop witnessing. Why? Because another helper has come. Another helper is already at work. And he, the Spirit, is already convicting people, already working inside people. And so when you step out on faith, when you speak the gospel to someone, that helper is already at work. And that helper is what moves and changes hearts and changes minds that helper the holy spirit is what brings someone to know who christ is and he can use even our most feeble words and our mistakes and our mumbling and stumbling to reach someone's heart and mind for christ so jesus says don't stop witnessing for that helper is at work i love how the <clears throat> London Confession of 1689 puts this when it's talking about the work of the Spirit and how it enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. It taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their will so that they come most freely. That the Spirit is at work that this other helper Jesus speaks about that's already witnessing, testifying on his behalf partners with us, works through us, gives us the energy and strength and the motivation to share the truth of who Christ is. And because that other helper is at work, we can trust and know people will respond. People will come to know Christ. How would that change how you share your faith? If you took seriously Jesus' words here that there's another helper that's coming and that's already testifying and witnessing about him. I think it encourages us. Because one, we realize that great truth is not about me. It's not about how well I can speak the gospel. It's not about how articulate I can be. It's not my persuasive points. I should have them. I should know it. I should be able to articulate it, but it's not about me because that other helpers doing the work. Actually, it's not about me. It's about God. That I'm always pointing back to God. I'm always pointing back to Christ. I'm always pointing back to His truth and not my opinion or what I think might happen, but Him and what He spoke through the Word and that we can trust in the power of the Holy Spirit that moves and is already working people's life. And so that means that we are just called to be faithful and that other helper can take our faulty steps of sharing and apply them to people's hearts and minds so they can know Christ. 
so we don't stop witnessing. And when we undergo any persecution or any kind of um, pushback against our faith, we continue to share as we've been directed to share. And we're also called not to fall away, to endure, to persevere, to keep after it. At the beginning of chapter 16, we see Jesus tell, look and look, know what's going to come to them and tell the disciples what's about to happen. He tells them, you will be put out of the synagogues. This is, happens. This, the Jewish community pushed back against the followers of Christ and said, you are no longer part of this community. You are outside of us. They were put out of the synagogues. We think, wow, that's not going to happen nowadays. It's happening across the globe that when someone comes to know Christ, they're put out of the community. That brothers and sisters will push a sibling away. That parents will push a child away because they come to faith. It's still happening today. And it even still happens in our country today. For I have shared stories before about people who come to know Jesus Christ through student ministry that I knew in, in, in college, through Young Life. And they grew up a Mormon. Their family was Mormon. What was their response? Get out. You're no longer welcome in this family. That happens that people confess who Jesus is and they're kicked out of their community. And so we see that and we're supposed to take heart from this as Jesus says, get ready for it. It could happen. But have hope because you have me. But he continues. It says, the day is coming when those who kill you will think they're offering services to God. Speaking to disciples, and he tells them the reality that we see played out in Acts. That Christians standing up for faith were persecuted by their Jewish neighbors because the Jewish neighbors thought they were serving God by doing so. We think of Saul, who we know as Paul. And what do, where's the first time we see him? He's holding the cloaks of the people who were stoning Stephen, giving his approval of, of, their, of their killing a Christian. That this is a reality. We think it's historical. But as we just saw through that video and as we see when we look across the globe, it's a reality played out again and again where Christians are standing for the faith and so they're persecuted even to death. We don't have to fear for that here. And we thank God for that. So what should our response be? We should be praying for our brothers and sisters across the globe. We should be praying for our brothers and sisters who have that fear, who are undergoing that persecution, that they can endure, that they cannot fall away, that they stay bold for Jesus and bold for God and continue to share. And then we pray for ourselves because things could change. I don't think our country is going to change anytime soon to the point we have to fear that. But something could change inside of you where all of a sudden you find yourself as a missionary across the globe in a context where that could happen. And so we pray that if we're called by God to do that, we can stand firm and persevere and endure no matter what happens. For Jesus makes it very clear what is the greatest danger when we experience persecution, is it injury? Is it death? No, he says the greatest danger is falling 
away. That persecution has a way of shifting out true Christians, true followers from false followers. That when persecution hits, all those spiritual scavengers kind of fly away. Those those spiritual scavengers who kind of circle around Christianity, hoping just to gain some of the benefits, the blessings from maybe that community, but not really believing. They don't want any part of this. But those who know Christ, who follow him, who know the truth, will endure, will not fall away, will know and count it as blessings if they experience the suffering that Christ experienced. If we are of Christ, we'll be hated like Christ. It's a joyful message. makes us say, yes, I'm looking forward to this. That's sarcasm. But the truth is, we see why Jesus tells them this. The reality is going to happen. But he tells them, I'm telling you these things so that you won't fall away. I'm telling you these things. And then when we pull back the context and we see what he just spoke in, at the beginning of John 15 and, and, and John 14 and even John 13 and what he's going to speak in John uh, 16 and 17, when we pull back and we see these things, we see that he's telling these things to disciples so that they will have comfort and peace even when this happens. That if we are of Jesus, we will be treated like Jesus but we will have Jesus. And that is a comfort. That is a hope. That we have a comfort that transcends understanding. A comfort that guards our hearts. A comfort and a joy that the world can't understand because it can't understand the one who gives it to us, who shares in it. That we have a comfort that we were once sinners, but we're now made new because of Jesus Christ. And now we are sons and daughters of the Most High. We have a comfort that we have a God who sits on his throne in heaven, who is moving heaven and earth to grow us and shape us to be like his son. We have a comfort that this life is not it, that the injustice we experience right now are not the final word, but the final word is God is going to come back, that Jesus will return, he'll set everything right, he'll wipe away every tear, and that we'll have eternity with him. We have a comfort that we can't even understand right now that's so large for us that it guards us and pulls us towards a future where we wait with expectancy that he will be there, that he is working now. We have a comfort in him. We have a comfort when all else fails because we know the Lord of the universe who loves us, who gave his son for us, who is now working for us, for our benefit. We have a comfort that John Patton experienced. He's a missionary to the South Pacific to islands inhabited by cannibals. He experienced suffering and harm at their hands, that there's many times where he faced his own death as he continued to preach Christ. And one time, even one of the natives of the islands attacked him with an axe, and he was only saved because another person he had befriended stepped in and kind of pushed the guy back. And after that, in his journal, he wrote this, Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made. And yet, with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed on Calvary 
and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and re resignation abode in my soul. That John Patton knew the truth that when we face persecution, where does peace come from? When we face suffering, where does persecution? Where does peace come from? It's the fact that we cling to the hand nailed to that cross, which now holds the scepter of the universe, that our Lord reigns and we have peace and comfort from him. If we are of Jesus, we'll be hated like Jesus, but we'll always have Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for who you are. Lord, in, this, in the, this hard message, this hard passage that we read this morning where we're faced with the reality that maybe life will not work out well for us. Maybe people will oppose us as we follow you. I pray that we can be diligent, we can be bold, we can stand firm on the truth, but more important than all else, that we can cling to you and know you and be encouraged by the peace that can only come from you. Lord, we love you. We pray for everyone here today that they can see you, follow you, and cling to that hand. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.